0: Hey, Eric, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, cool. This will be about thirty
2: minutes. All right. So, just tell us a little bit about yourself, please.
1: Well, uh, I mean, my. Do you need my real name? Because I can give it. I don't really care. No, I mean. No. All right. No. Uh. Well, uh, you know, I'm Eric. Uh, I live in uh, Michigan. I've done. I haven't really done too much. With other groups. I mean, I've done a couple of uh, meetings with what was like a bushcraft group in like Kalamazoo or something. And then I started uh, Aryan resistance and then kind of got some people through that. Okay, cool. So so what's your ethnicity? Uh, Well, I'm uh, quarter Slavic and then mostly
0: Anglo and German
3: sounds like hate is a new podcast series from the southern poverty law center i'm geraldine moriba and i'm jamila Paxima.
4: this is part two of baseless
1: how old are you i'm 17. i'd like to hear in your words exactly what you believe you could bring to the table anybody that needs anything they got a safe house to go to
4: This first season is about how some people become extremists and how some of them disengage from a life of hatred.
1: What do you think the solution is, if any? I think the solution is to prepare now, get people to separate.
4: The recording you're hearing is 17-year-old Eric applying for membership to a violent neo-Nazi group called The Base. He is being interviewed by the leader, Ronaldo Nazaro.
1: I mean, if you look at the economy, And this whole fiat currency, even if it doesn't collapse, it's just going to degenerate more and more until even the military starts to revolt. Every empire falls, you know. That's why I'd say just prepare for the fall.
3: We'll come back to Eric's story in a moment. First, we'd like you to understand what you're listening to. These are 83 hours of secret audio recordings between more than 100 white supremacists. These conversations took place inside the base's vetting room, where they interview new recruits on wire and encrypted app. We worked with data scientists to search for clues to their motivations.
2: We want things to accelerate, and we want things to get worse in the United States. And from that point, by virtue of the chaos that ensues, that would naturally present some opportunities for us. Law and order starts breaking down, power vacuums start emerging for those who are organized and ready to take advantage of those.
4: In part one we reveal how the base was forming alliances with other white power groups and recruiting men with military and combat training. We also met a reporter who infiltrated the base and exposed the violent plans of one member in the Canadian military reserves. We pick up our story in the vetting room. It's the summer of 2019.
2: We'll use that as an opportunity to take advantage of any power vacuum that might
4: emerge. This is the leader, the, the chief white supremacist.
2: Who knows what could happen next?
4: He uses the aliases Norman Spear and Roman Wolf.
2: We're hoping the system is going to destroy itself.
4: His real name is Ronaldo Nazara. He operates this international neo-Nazi organization from his home in Russia. What you will hear will be disturbing. These conversations in the vetting room contain offensive language and discussions about the violent collapse of America.
2: It fucking shit pops off. Canada's
1: right there to the north. That's an unarmed, soft population, man. Raid right? those yeah. motherfuckers oh, on sleds, shit. fast and hard, like the Vikings of old. Steal their fucking women and bring them back over.
4: That's what one recruit thinks of our neighbors to the north. But it turns out Canadians are not immune to white supremacy either.
5: So he tells me he's a member of the Canadian Armed Forces.
4: When Winnipeg Free Press Press reporter Ryan Thorpe infiltrated the base in July 2019, he he started directly communicating with Patrick Matthews, Matthews, a 26-year-old member.
5: The the National Security Unit of the RCMP.
4: When we left this part of the story, Thorpe was trying to verify Matthews was in the Canadian Armed Forces without tipping anyone off.
5: I later found out that he was a member of the Canadian Army. Reserves, um, but he didn't specify that at the time. He just said Canadian Armed Forces.
4: And what kind of expertise was he professing he had?
5: Explosives, primarily. He um, talked about how, you know, explosives work was essentially the bread and butter of the combat engineering field.
4: Matthews also told Thorpe he had crossed the U.S. border to attend paramilitary trainings with other base members, and wanted to ramp up hate camps or combat training in Canada. Thorpe had all he needed. He cut off communication, closed his Wire account, and released the front page story, Homegrown Hate.
5: I threw out as many breadcrumbs as I had. You have to be 100% certain if you're going to accuse someone of something like this. I figured that someone who knew this person was going to read my initial report which is exactly what happens. And by Monday, we published a follow-up identifying him as Master Corporal Patrick Matthews. Hours later, the RCMP raids his home in Beaujolais.
4: A neighbor captured the raid on his cell phone as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police ordered Matthews to exit his back door with his hands up. His weapons were confiscated, He was taken in for questioning and released with no charges. Two days later, Matthews disappeared.
3: The following month, in September 2019, three members of a different cell vandalized the Beth Israel Sinai congregation in Racine, Wisconsin, including a 22-year-old named Yusuf Barashne. They spray-painted the synagogue with anti-Semitic statements, swastikas, and the base's logo.
6: My name is Jenny Cassie. I'm the director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of the Milwaukee
3: Jewish Federation. Base members called vandalizing this Wisconsin synagogue and others Operation Crystal Knock or Night of Broken Glass. They were using this name given to a series of vicious attacks by German Nazis that took place on a single night in 1938 on Jewish businesses, hospitals, and schools. And
7: it was
6: frightening. We have People in our community who are survivors. You know, I have friends who are second or third generation uh, survivors, right? That their their grandparents or parents are. And so, seeing those words put onto a synagogue,
7: it it really shakes you.
3: The anti-Semitism expressed here isn't new to America. Deadly attacks on synagogues, like the ones in Pittsburgh and Poway, make global headlines. Less reported are the assaults, harassment, and vandalism against Jewish people which are at near historic levels in the U.S.
6: And we saw hate group activity in Wisconsin go up 900%.
3: Um, 900%? Yes. Groups like the base are motivated by a festering fear that goes back centuries, replacement of the white race. They put a lot of effort into making sure their recruits are not only white, but the right kind of white.
2: What is your ethnicity? Mostly Celtic. I'm American, so mix of everything, but I call myself Celtic.
1: I'm three-quarts Anglo, one-quart Dutch. I'm definitely white. <laughs>
2: I mean, I'm in the black area, man. Um, Gwinnett County is fucking crazy. I hate it a lot, but I'm in in Gwinnett County a lot. And um, I'm white. My boss is white. That's pretty much all I hang out with. You don't have any non-white blood. Nope.
3: More than one recruit claimed royal blood. Part
1: of my family were uh, European royalty for about 1,500 years. So
8: I actually ended up doing a fucking DNA test thing. And I kind of knew it from the get-go, because my mother's side of the family is, like, super fucking German. And then my father's side is, like, super, you know, like, super British. Because, hell, they're part of the fucking—I mean, distantly, mind you, but they are part of the royal family. Um, Princess Diane Spencer.
0: I'm,
1: like, 90% white with uh, some Latin blood.
3: And some of the men who tried to join weren't white enough. It's
1: not
5: Spanish-speaking Latin. It's a mix of uh, Portuguese— and Indigenous American kind
2: of thing? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that
1: might be an issue. Um, Yeah, I get get that, yeah.
3: These racists talk about the white race in 70% of the 83 hours of recordings we analyzed. Overall, the word white is mentioned 494 times. By contrast, the word black comes up 101 times, and Jew, 75.
7: It's difficult to have an honest conversation about what we continue to see in terms of, you know, hateful discourse and practices without understanding that many of these ideas were the institutionalized norm for the vast majority of this country's history.
4: Crystal Marie Fleming is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Africana Studies at Stony Brook University.
7: We can observe a confluence of hateful rhetoric uh, targeting many different kinds of groups, including Jewish people, but also including other European descendant groups who are considered racially inferior from the perspective of white supremacist dogma. In
4: the early 1900s, immigrants who came to the U.S. from Italy, Ireland, Greece, Spain, Portugal, or Eastern Europe were not considered white. Two generations later, they receive all the benefits that come from being white in America. Nazaro's background is Catholic and Italian. There was a time when this defender of whiteness would not have been white
7: enough. we're talking about a system of power that was really only established over the last 400 years, but it very much has to do with the enactment of the transatlantic slave trade, as well as the expansion of European colonial domination, and the expansion of capitalism as a mode of production, racial slavery, chattel slavery, as we you know it. And so we can't, really understand white supremacy without, you know, having a pretty complex conversation about the intertwining histories of these forms of dispossession and and domination.
4: Then there's the history of the National Socialist Movement or Neo-Nazi ideology, which goes back decades, and with it, a series of manifestos, essentially required reading for anyone aiming to join the base. We decided our podcast, Sounds Like Hate, will not include any names of the writers, titles of the books, or papers filled with the violent intentions and destructive how-to schemes.
6: Far and away, the clearest historical precedent for what we're seeing from groups like The Base is a paramilitary white power terrorist group active in the mid-1980s called The Order.
3: So Kathleen Belew is the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement, and Paramilitary America. She's also an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago.
6: So the Order was a cohort of activists who um, embarked on a string of violent crimes in order to funnel money to the broader white power movement and also in an attempt to provoke race war. The white power movement, which really came together in the late 1970s um, and declared war on the federal government in the early 1980s and has been active in some capacity ever since. This movement has always operated with a public facing sphere of activity and a violent paramilitary underground.
3: According to Ballou, groups like the Order and the Base come and go in a way that doesn't align with what people might predict. These patterns don't follow spikes in poverty, immigration, or moments when there are major civil rights gains.
6: All of American society becomes more violent in the aftermath of warfare. There is a boom impact. There's something about the aftermath of warfare that creates this opportunity for vigilante violence and revolutionary white power violence to really amplify. So we see it after the Civil War, after World War One, World War Two. we see it after Vietnam. That's not the kind of warfare we are in anymore. I think we're kind of off the map historically. And it's, it's a really important question because there will be an impact. Um, and I think we're starting to see, you know, a big ricochet effect. But I don't know what the effect will look like.
3: The basis goal to provoke a race war is an old racist strategy. It has a name, acceleration.
6: What they mean in accelerationism is overthrow of the United States such that um, they can establish a new racial nation of only white people, often imagined as a transnational project that will also bring in white people in other quote-unquote salvageable places like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, parts of Europe. It is a fundamentally violent project
3: The Southern Poverty Law Center estimates in 2019 there were 940 hate groups here in the U.S. One of the movements to emerge is the boogaloo. These are extreme right libertarians, known for wearing Hawaiian shirts with paramilitary fatigues. And they are often armed. Today, neo-Nazis and white nationalists use boogaloo as a term referring to inciting a second American civil war or collapse.
6: So if we think about the Proud Boys, boogaloo the alt-right, the Charlottesville demonstrators wearing khaki polo shirts, the base wearing paramilitary uniforms. Those groups all look pretty different and they spend a lot of energy describing themselves as being pretty different. That's very similar to how this worked in the 1980s. The archive shows us that in fact, all of those groups were deeply interconnected, were sharing weapons, money, people, and ideology, and were oriented around the same mission.
2: Okay, so I have gear,
5: you know, I have boots, 511s. I have tar and pretty much everything. But, you know, I'm 18 in the state of California. Is that going to interfere with anything?
6: So one of the important things to do in the present is to do the very difficult work of linking and looking for continuities between these groups. We start to see that through the circulation of people and money and guns and symbols and ideologies. Teenager Eric
4: is their kind of people. Yeah, more of that kind Listen of carefully of to Nazaro's questions and deal. Eric's responses.
9: It's interesting that you were
2: out there kind of very publicly giving speeches and things like that.
1: Well, it was more because I got kicked, uh, left school, because I uh you know, kept having problems.
4: Nazaro isn't trying to convert him on this call. He's looking for confirmation Eric already believes in white supremacy.
1: I still keep myself out there because I'm not really too scared. I was in uh, the, uh, there was an assembly going on. I it was giving a speech and then there was a light coming in from the window behind me. They called me Jesus Hitler the rest of the year.
4: In the same vetting conversation, 17-year-old Eric disclosed he had more than one visit from the feds around the time, he says, he founded the Aryan resistance cell in his Michigan community.
1: My brother came upstairs. He told me, he's like, the feds are here. And I was like, what are you talking about, man?
4: This perhaps should have raised a big red flag about Eric's OPSEC, code language for security.
1: Open the door, and there's like 11 feds, ATF agents, guys in suits. I mean, it was crazy. And then uh, I sat down, talked to him, and the ATF agents went in my room, and uh, they have all my serial numbers and my guns and shit. Uh, and they found this silencer I was trying to make uh, in the garage.
4: Eric claimed he got away with only a warning. At the end of his vetting call, Nazaro and the other base members weigh the risks of admitting him.
5: I think he could be a great asset to the base, you know, just from what he can offer as far as training-wise, equipment goes, and just all of that. I wish he was more careful with but
2: he was saying, like, you know, maybe being a little bit too uh, cavalier, maybe. I don't know what the word is. Uh, maybe he's not to totally appreciate um, what's what, what he might be facing. Uh, overall, he's pretty good. I mean, I think he's he can bring a lot to the table. So let's give him a shot. Hopefully he will tone it down somewhat.
3: Other than their shared pride in being white, these men are pretty diverse. Some are well-educated and others are dropouts. Some have wealth and some have criminal records. But for the most part, the base targets younger people in high school and college.
2: I have a job. Uh, I have a car. I'm graduating soon. I'm a senior. I'm going to uh, college, uh, uh,
3: trade school. According to our data analysis, 88% of the ages mentioned by recruits were under 30. The base targets them primarily on the internet. And when the youngest recruits, 18 and under, talked about internet platforms, 45% of the time, they mentioned iFunny.
2: So how did you hear about the base?
3: Like this one, who says he's 17.
4: Um, crap. What's his name on iFunny. It's uh, your local Uh Met him through the CCR, the Christian
2: Coalition. Thing and um, ended up asking about it because I've been hearing or I see people like talking about it on I funny sometimes, and he just basically told me what it was about.
3: And another 17-year-old, a year and a half ago, who says he graduated early from high school in California. I
2: really started to get serious about it. Not that I wasn't serious beforehand, but you know, actually taking uh, the action stance rather than the uh, just talk about it stance. Just. Shit post and complain about Jews and in group chats and I can't sit here and do nothing or else I'm just a retard. I'm a coward, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm not the best fucking person in the world. I'm not, I, I don't have a whole lot of skills, but I want to learn things because it's important to actually have hands-on skills and not be some fucking keyboard warrior retard. Do you consider yourself to be a militant? Absolutely. Uh, one thing my friend said is, uh, if you're not willing to commit war crimes for the people you love, do you truly love them?
3: Can you tell me the Trojan chant?
10: Fight on for old sea, our men fight on to victory. Our alma mater dear looks up to you. Fight on and win for old sea, Fight on to victory. Fight on. Bum, bum, bum. Patrick Prince
3: is the associate vice provost and chief threat assessment officer for the University of Southern California. (laughs) So, unfortunately, we're going to talk about a different kind of fight. A full third of all the ages mentioned on these calls were between 18 and 21, college-aged.
10: We know the number of incidents on campuses are growing.
3: Prince works on this front line.
10: But they're still, thank God, relatively small.
3: It's his job to identify college students who are most at risk.
10: My mandate is to be able to listen to language, observe behavior, and try to distinguish which is a person who is expressing their First Amendment rights, and which is a person that is on a pathway to violence, and how do we stop that forward momentum from violence.
3: And what's the demographic of the students who are radicalized that you've observed? White. Male. male.
10: Um, the, the standard, typical things we see. Undergrad?
3: Uh, graduate?
10: I really think more graduate. I worry about the person who's got five years into their graduate program. They're not progressing. They're not going to progress. And now they've invested so much. So now that's the one that scares me because they've lost everything psychologically. And we we start to look for those behaviors, uh, that desperation, that sense of of alienation. Because historically, a lot of folks in my business focus only on deterrence of harm. But that's not good enough. If we still leave somebody isolated, angry, bitter, then maybe we've just deferred the violence, and I don't want to do that. If we can identify early enough those folks that are desperate, lonely, isolated, and Connect them to positive attachments. Then we've done better than just deferred harm; is we've actually incurred growth. I don't know that I have the ability to de-radicalize somebody. I have a goal to stop from being a, a violent radical, and that I can do. I can get in front of the violence. We can uh, defer or, or, or redirect that potentially violent individual. Um, I don't know that I have the ability to change their radicalized views. I just don't.
1: Uh, So what type of training would we be talking about?
10: Even though these conversations were
3: primarily for recruiting purposes, sometimes they discuss paramilitary training meetups, too.
1: I was a Boy Scout for a long time.
3: This 19-year-old from Alabama is speaking to Nazaro.
1: I am good with a gun. I've grown up around
2: guns my entire life. So, I mean, most of it is pretty straightforward, you know, because um, the things, survivalism, wilderness survivalism, um, small unit tactics, um, you know, self-defense, mostly with weapons, firearms in, partic- in particular. We're not like typical prepper group where we tend to just hunker down and, and weather the storm, you know, wait for the storm to pass. I mean, we want the storm to increase. You know, we we, we want to be the storm, eventually, at some point, you know, after the initial collapse uh, occurs, we want to keep that going. So we have a a very different end goal and uh, purpose for learning those skills. I
1: own 130 acres of land that is just perfect for any kind of collapse scenario.
3: Applicants with access to many acres of private property were especially appealing and were almost always accepted as candidates. It's one of the reasons they accepted 17-year-old Eric. Yeah,
1: I mean, if you wanted a camp, you could always pitch a tent, like, on the property. Okay. Yeah, that's the tent they could bring, too. Yeah, I can always do that. Yeah, we could probably take in, like, four people at the house, you know, if you, if you want to sit on, like,
5: couches and stuff. So what we're trying to do is build, like, entire communities up there, and if we can both buy land, we could bring two different sets of people up.
1: Yeah, because that's what we're trying to do is have a community of compounds. So, you know, the more land people will buy, you know, the better. We could take over counties and shit. That's my plan with this. And we'll be moving there probably this summer or next uh, fall. I've been working with these kids since they are like fucking 15 years old.
3: The person she's speaking here recruits really young cool. members for the base.
1: He red-pilled his mom over years, <laughs> and now she's a full-blown national socialist, and she has a really good nice shit. job. So she's the one funding it all. I'm just coming up with a couple
3: grand for help with the down payment. Eric says his mother agreed to host a major paramilitary training meetup on her property around Bad Axe, Michigan.
1: I was a little scared for a second. Uh, not not really, but, you know.
3: Here is Nazaro's yeah, really armchair sure. legal advice when 17-year-old Eric expresses a concern about the meetup.
1: Is paramilitary training on, you know, U.S. soil illegal and shit. Yeah, I mean, just with that, I've done a lot of research on it. Maybe like half the states
2: have the laws on the books against paramilitary training. What it applies to is uh, two or more people that are getting together to train for causing civil unrest and/or property destruction. So uh,
4: it has here no- are the facts. There are 25 states that criminalize certain paramilitary trainings.
2: So it's really intent has a lot to
4: do with it. A July 2020 Georgetown Law Report says the statutes in these states make it illegal for individuals to teach each other how to use firearms, explosives, or other techniques capable of causing injury or death or to assemble to train or practice with such firearms, explosives, knowing or intending to further civil disorder.
2: Not training to prepare for the collapse, but training to make it happen.
4: Michigan is one of those 25 states. So Nazaro's defense around intent was, at best, weak.
1: What date would be best in January
9: for everybody?
4: On the next Wire call, they made plans to meet up on Eric's mother's property.
9: i vote 11th. That sounds good to me. Yeah, a be good. Between now Plus, and then, I'll stock, up, tracers, I'll stock up yeah. on some base layers. For yeah. and shit myself, so yeah.
5: actually it does look out better because I blew through quite a bit of 308 at the last VF. fucking so raped my wallet. I just brought up a box of 500 around the 308 last time. That
9: works, and I can help you guys out. Uh, again, I'm an older guy. I mean, I'm a little more established, so... Um, I can, uh, like I did for the Georgia thing, you give me somewhere to ship it, I'll just go ahead and order whatever you need, man, 556, because it's it's a lot cheaper to get it
1: online. If any of you guys got a fucking base flag, that's what we could really use.
4: The meetup Nazaro seemed most excited about would be on his own land in Republic, Washington.
1: What I have in mind
2: is it would be essentially like a weekend, overnight, um, camping trip, like on my land, on my land, okay, And, and then... For those two days, we would be doing, like, a handful of kind of training type of events. Um, um, some of which I kind of basic stuff, again, sort of like land navigation. I mean, if we can figure out a way to legally bring firearms, like some marksmanship type stuff.
4: The one hitch Washington was Washington changed State changed exactly. its lenient gun laws before they could meet. So, here's the deal. Nazaro the came up with a workaround. Done.
2: You have to be 21 to possess a firearm unless it's on your own property. So if we bring weapons or ship weapons over in the manner I described, um, you you can ship to yourself. We'll at least have like four.
4: Back in Michigan, Eric told the group his mother asked him to postpone their meetup until January of 2020.
1: Yeah, I just uh, we had to change the date on this meetup uh, because of. Some problems with uh, my mom. She's so, just really scared of Fed visits because uh, she needs to get her DEA license and shit for being a doctor. And I, I'm going to get her wire so then, because she wants to talk to everybody that's coming up just to get a general gist of them because she's really, you know, paranoid.
11: Yeah, I mean, I think that there is no singular pathway to becoming radicalized, and there's no typical person who becomes a part of these movements. I mean, we can point...
4: Cassie Miller is a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Um, Law Center and an expert in extremism. She listened to Eric's vetting call.
11: Their experiences vary pretty wildly.
4: Eric claims his mother is a doctor and says as long as these violent extremists are polite and clean up after themselves, she's okay with inviting them to camp out on her property and sleep on her floors.
11: Those personal connections are really important for reinforcing people's beliefs. And so I think this is one example where you can kind of see that illustrated where where someone is involved in this kind of um, political ideology and is you know engaged in an extremist movement um, but that their beliefs and their organizing is kind of being reinforced by uh, one of their personal relationships and and in this case it's his mother, which is I think pretty startling um, but but not altogether unexpected.
4: The youngest recruits on these calls are not practicing their parents' religion. Most are pagans. One of the rituals Eric asked about involves sacrificing an animal to Odin, the Norse god of war and death, then eating it.
9: (laughs) Number two, the animal that we are eating needs to be a fucking edible animal. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'm going to throw in there.
4: On one of the meetup planning calls, what was the sick part? they discussed what a past mean. pagan ritual.
9: I went to pick up the 30 fucking bacon, egg, and cheese buttery biscuits from Bojangle, so I'm riding back with nothing but butter, bacon, egg, and cheese flowing through my nostrils. I get out. He says, Scott, you got to try this goat. And I go, okay. And I tried. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, the, the smell that I've been smelling, taste, it didn't mix. And then what you didn't see is I turned and spit it out threw the other piece over my shoulder and said, anybody want any biscuits?
4: On the same planning call, they talked about guns, basic medical training, and staging propaganda videos.
9: So, 10 to 15 people, that's pretty fucking good. That's awesome. That's uh, some, some good video ops right there, bro. Hell yeah. We just have to
1: make sure that uh, it's it's a... Clear step up from the previous video. I want to show constant progression with everything we release. Well, we were shooting at like. Run, motherfucker, run! Yeah, we we uh we were setting up targets on top of these giant fucking electrical towers. They're like fucking ten feet fucking long, like wide, just solid steel, man. I was planking them with 308, and just leaving little dust marks on them.
11: And it's nice because you can hear your hits. It goes
3: Is it correct to estimate these white supremacist extremists kill more people in the U.S. than any other extremist group?
0: Yes. You know, obviously, 9 11 was extremely horrific in, in the casualty rate and, and far exceeded any kind of death toll from any terrorist attack before or since.
3: Mike German is a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School and a former FBI agent. He says crimes by white supremacists are not being properly addressed, and we've narrowly avoided attempts at mass murder.
0: But in a typical year, yes, there's no question in the United States that more people die at the hands of white supremacists and far-right militants than any other group, even though we don't know the full scope of it. You have to understand that the FBI is still predominantly a white male organization. Uh, It's it's 84 percent white and 80 percent male. So when a white male sits down to think about what are the greatest threats uh, to, to his world, white supremacists aren't the number one threat. They're not likely to invade his community and hurt his family. The FBI does not have a database of incidents of of far-right violence uh, and particularly the deadly violence that we're talking about Um, so they they don't have a way of objectively measuring the threat from that these groups pose in the first place
3: what's the result of this failure to accurately count far-right extremists
0: if a white supremacist kills somebody let's say of another race uh, they can categorize that in a number of ways they can say, "Okay, this person was part of a white supremacist group that has previously engaged in violence, so uh, we'll count this as an act of domestic terrorism." And then it's the number one priority: combating terrorism. Domestic terrorism is is typically treated as a second priority to international terrorism within that number one priority. But they could also call it a hate crime.
3: The FBI has five federal hate crime statutes. The problem is. If the FBI designates a case as a hate crime, it drops down to number five on the list of eight agency priorities.
0: The number of resources and the attention that case will be given is much reduced. But even more importantly, the Justice Department's policy is to defer the investigation and prosecution of hate crimes to state and local authorities. And finally, they might designate that as gang violence. Then it's the number six priority, and it doesn't get counted in either the the civil rights violations like hate crimes or in the counterterrorism statistics.
3: So as a result, we don't know how many people white supremacists have killed this year or last year or the year before that.
0: Exactly, because this policy of deferring to state and local police to investigate might make sense if state and local police investigated these crimes. But we know 87 percent of police departments that aren't Necessarily tracking these crimes at all. We have five states that don't have hate crime laws, so even if they wanted to track these crimes, they don't have a statute that would help them differentiate this from, from any other violent crime. And
3: it doesn't get. German says the way white supremacists skirt the rules of the law is a persistent historical problem.
0: One of the first types of public policing were slave patrols and all kinds of police action were actually enforcing white supremacy laws that were on the books all through Jim Crow. Many states and locations had sundown towns that were unofficial uh, uh, regulations uh, that were enforced by the police. So the police have a history of racist policing.
4: The police raid on the home of Canadian Army reservist and member of the base, Patrick Matthews, made headlines across the world.
7: There are new developments in the case of an army reservist accused of having links to a neo-Nazi group. Manitoba RCMP say their primary goal today is to find Patrick Matthews.
2: The Winnipeg army reservist with alleged links to a neo-Nazi organization is now the subject of an RCMP missing persons investigation. Police are
7: asking anyone who might know where he is to call his family or the RCMP. He
2: is believed to be driving a red 2010 Dodge Ram 15,000 SLT truck
4: It was Matthews' family who reported his disappearance.
5: The RCMP seizes his firearms and then releases him without charge, and then he disappears.
4: After several days of a national manhunt, Matthews' red truck was found abandoned at the U.S.-Canada border.
5: You know, we later find out he flees the country and goes to the United States.
4: Matthews entered the U.S. illegally, where he joined two base members. Then, authorities let reporter Thorpe know He was on a hit list.
5: Eventually the threats did start coming in both directly to me and then I was also called to a meeting with uh, the national security unit of the RCMP which is the federal police force in Canada and they you know warned me that they were aware of death threats against me that that was something I needed to be careful about.
3: On September 19, 2019, Nazaro was vetting an international applicant using the name Dakov. He's a 19-year-old pagan from Ottawa, Canada.
2: What is your ethnicity? Uh, Slavic,
8: Moldovan.
3: On his application, he said he uses the telegram handle Terror Machine Moldova. He also spoke about wanting to join base members at the Georgia meetup for paramilitary training because Canadian gun laws prohibited this type of training.
2: Okay, so uh, you um, are thinking to participate in one of our training events? Uh,
8: yes, I. Yeah, i thought about going down to Georgia after my uh, after I get leave, after my BCT, and maybe um, depends like when they uh, finally reassign me after I finish. Uh, military intelligence and JTAC school, I will probably have leave before deployment and I could go down to uh, Georgia.
3: This college-age recruit claimed he'd been recently admitted to the Canadian Armed Forces, or CAF, and was about to be deployed. He was boasting about specialty military training, even though he hadn't even begun basic training.
8: Okay, when is that, approximately? They said anything can happen between now and then. So, okay, you're going to JTAC school. That's pretty cool.
3: JTAC stands for Joint Terminal Attack Controller. That's a service member who directs the action of combat aircraft.
8: Uh, Well, JTAC, CBRN and
0: airborne.
3: And CBRN is chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear operations training.
2: Uh
8: Wow. Nice. That's that's pretty awesome. uh, yeah, JTAC is a pretty awesome job. And after basic training, I have to do military intelligence. And after that, I'll have to do, um, I'll have to take an artillery course for uh, JTAC. Obviously, that's one of the prerequisites, I think, military intelligence and artillery. And, then, sure, um, okay. Okay. and then I will okay. be able to apply for JTAC.
3: Not only did this recruit Dakov claim to be in the Canadian Armed Forces, he said he was the temporary leader of a group called SKD. Or Creek Division. He says he was also a member of Northern Order. That's a phantom white power organization. Both groups are affiliated with US based Adam Waffen Division, a violent neo Nazi organization.
8: It sounds like you got a lot going on. Why do you want to also now join the base? I know uh, here in Northern Order, it's like a bunch of guys spread around uh, different cities doing prop runs, that type of shit. With the base, it's more so about uh, sharing skills with people in different parts of the world, people that have seen shit, that have experienced different shit. And I definitely think that uh, it would be good knowledge to bring the skills they would learn from being in the base. They could apply whilst doing Northern Order activities.
3: Nazaro quickly realized Dakov could be key to growing international alliances.
8: Okay. Yeah,
2: that makes total sense. That is definitely one thing that we encourage. I mean, that's kind of one of our purposes is is networking. You know, we're trying to build trust. We're trying to build
8: camaraderie. Um, but you know, we also have to constantly remain vigilant. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, especially after that fucking one guy from Winnipeg like infiltrated the group and he was in the main chat. Uh, so how do you feel
2: about? I mean, all that stuff that happened uh, in Winnipeg. I mean. Does that kind of change your resolve at all? I mean, as
8: far as... Well, I've never been public with uh, my affiliations or anything. When it came to Jimmy, I've heard that the reason he got so fucked was because he told a guy, like, I'm pretty sure he told him his first name and where he works, like he's a member of the CAF.
3: The Jimmy he's talking about is Canadian reservist Patrick Matthews, the same fugitive who met with reporter Thorpe.
8: And he talked about, like, he was in, like, logistics, reserve force, stuff like that. So in a way, he basically, like, like if he never told the guy, like, yeah, I'm with the CAF, he never would have been able to find him. Just, like, okay. keep your mouth shut. That's what okay. I go by.
3: Not only that, Dakov says he was trying to help this fugitive on the run.
8: I have no idea. Like, I talked to him. The only thing we talked to are in regards to, like, getting a J out of Winnipeg.
4: The Canadian Armed Forces have told us they are opening an investigation to identify Dakov and sent us the following statement Our message is simple and it's clear. If you perpetuate or condone hateful conduct, you do not belong in the CAF. on the next episode of Sounds Like Hate, find out whether Dakov is identified and if he ever connected with Matthews, his fellow Canadian white supremacist, and whether the FBI intercedes on time to prevent an armed confrontation planned by base members at a pro-gun rally in Richmond, Virginia. Some people in
7: camouflage carrying guns. I see some people from the
2: 3% militias out here, Oath Keepers, some Proud Boys,
3: USA! 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 These are complicated stories about people who hold on to false histories and terroristic ideologies and draw boundaries that are skin deep. If
4: you or anyone you know has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authorities or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org report hate.
3: This is Sounds Like Hate, an independent audio documentary brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Additional funding comes from the Ring Foundation. Produced by Until 20 Productions. I'm Jamila Paxima. And I'm Geraldine Moriba. Remember to subscribe to find out when new episodes are released. Give us a rating and
4: review too. It really helps. Thanks for listening.